My name is Allison Brown, and I am a co-director for the Communities for Just Schools Fund. It is wonderful to see all of the faces joining us today, all of our friends and family. Thank you for being here and, and welcome. This is a, a very important conversation, and we're looking forward to engaging with you and to hearing from the amazing panelists that we have here today. So we're going to talk today about the origins of the education justice movement. We're going to talk about Mississippi. And Mississippi is ground zero, as you all know, for so much of the political resistance and Black power that has shaped a nation. And I know that I am consistently drawn to Mississippi and have been for years. My family all were sharecroppers in Mississippi, in, in Yazoo City before joining the great migration to the North, to Indiana, where I was born. And the spiritual connection that I have to Mississippi is, is really deeper than anything that I could put into words. When I hear my grandmothers and I feel their presence and I feel the, the music of their voices and the music of Mississippi, it's part of my genetic memory. It's part of who I am and who I, who I was before I was this physical presence. So there is much underlying that, that genetic memory. There's pride, there's awe, there's joy and pain and struggle and life and death. In Mississippi, you know, the monster of this nation's own origins has reared its many heads. Systemic racism, poverty, disenfranchisement, racial violence. And in Mississippi, the beauty of a people has shown power, resistance, strength, resilience, subversiveness, and really protection of children and a real focus on young people. And so we'll talk about that work today. We'll talk about its importance in understanding the education justice movement and the calls for equity in schools. And with that, I will turn it to my wonderful colleague and sister, Dina Robinson-Mock, to introduce our panelists. All right. Thank you so much, Allison. And um, I'm Thena Robinson, Mock Program Officer with Communities for Just Schools Fund. I recognize a lot of names here on our webinar today. So thank you for being here. And so just to kick this off, so this virtual series that we're launching today is part of Education Anew Shifting Justice 2020, which would have been in Jackson, Mississippi this summer. So we are still very, very uh, we're still mourning that we couldn't be there in person, but we're so excited to have our friends and comrades uh, on the line with us today. So this is, is part of what would have been um, our in-person gathering. Our hope and our goal is to have a series of conversations that really bring together the intersections of what education and new shifting justice is. And so just to give you a little bit of background, originally launched in 2016, Education and New Shifting Justice, or EAS. J2020, um, as we often refer to it. It's a biennial convening co-hosted by the Communities for Just Schools Fund um, and our friends over at the Andrus Family Fund. And this convening brings education and youth justice organizers together to dream, to reimagine, and strategize to make possible a world where young people can thrive. And the themes that we will 
spotlight as part of education and new shifting justice are themes that range from policy advocacy, organizing, themes around abolition, including police-free schools, the closing of youth prisons, culturally affirming and liberatory education, addressing racism and anti-Blackness in education, gender justice, and the impact of the election 2020 and more. And let me just say that, you know, when we made the decision to focus on Mississippi, a lot of that had to do with the gratitude and debt that we know that we owe organizers in Mississippi, those who are with us, those who are no longer with us, but whose spirit we carry forward into the work that we do. And we know that if it had not been for the courage and Black genius of what Mississippi has brought to this country and to this world in the face of terror and callous indifference to Black life, this fight that we have been waging to end the school-to-prison pipeline here in the United States, this fight to end punitive discipline, to abolish police in schools, to abolish corporal punishment, this movement would not be what it is today without organizers in Mississippi. So I see this today as an opportunity to give flowers to those who have given us so much. And so today we're going to hear from a powerhouse roster of speakers, and we'll be sure to introduce them as we transition. Um, But just to give you a quick preview, um, we're honored today to be joined by Ellen Reddy of Nolly Jenkins Family Center, Rachel Mays and Brenda Hyde from Southern Echo, Allison R. Brown from Communities for the Schools Fund, who you'll hear from, Jonathan Stiff from Alliance for Educational Justice, Natalie Collier from the Lighthouse Black Girls Project, Rukia Lumumba from the People's Advocacy Institute, and Albert Sykes from IDEA, and Tamika Mosley from Grantmakers for Southern Progress. So I'm going to quickly just move us to our agenda. We're going to kick this off really with setting the history and context of what this organizing has been in Mississippi around this fight to end the school-to-prison pipeline. We're going to start with Ellen Reddy of Nolly Jenkins Family Center. And let me just say that Ellen is one of my sheroes in this work, someone who has deeply influenced how I have learned over the years to show up the right way to support the movement for education justice. So I'm honored to introduce and turn the mic over to Ellen Reddy. Thank you, Tina, for the introduction. And thank you, Allison, for always speaking so wonderfully of Mississippi. Mississippi is a beautiful place. I've been here since 1994. Knowledge was founded in 1994. And we had a track record of being effective at accessing the political process, impact information, a policy both at the local, county, and state level, and developing unusual alliances to do this education work. In 2001, my twin and I, um, and most people know I have a twin, Helen, we noticed a lot of young people hanging out during the day on the street and kind of wonder what was going on. We were already fighting around zero tolerance policies, teaching young people about their rights inside school buildings, inside communities, the police. But this was a new phenomena for us. And so we start to ask the question, why aren't you in school during the day? And they shared with us that they had been to these training schools and they shared their experiences that it was difficult getting back into the school building because there was so much stigma and shame attached when they tried to go back because they were uh, seen as prisoners. They'd been away to prison. And at that time, we were in partnership with Tupelo College doing a lot of work with the college. And so this young brother was walking across the campus and you all know me and my sister, if we see you and we see a spirit about you, we're going to call you to us. So Greg Griffin was this young man who was walking across the campus with locks in his hair. And keep in mind, this is 
in early, late 90s, 98, 99. There weren't very many people in Mississippi wearing locks. My sister and I, my niece, and Greg Griffin. So we called this young brother over and we told him we had something for him to do because we recognized that what these young brothers had shared with us, we would not be able to deal with. And so we brought Greg out of Jackson up into Holmes County. And Greg started the first Holmes County Prevention of Schoolhouse to Jailhouse. And we called it Prevention of Schoolhouse to Jailhouse because we felt strongly that there was a train that took our young people from the school to the jailhouse. And we wanted to derail this train. If you know anything about a train, you can derail it, you can stop it, you can set a caboose back up and straighten it. So we had this knowledge and understanding that we needed to derail this train from the schoolhouse to the jailhouse. Um, and then we started to reach out to other members of organizations, particularly members of the Mississippi Delta Catalyst Roundtable who were doing work up in the Delta. And we were asking them, are you experiencing this thing called the youth court or training schools? Because at this point, we didn't know anything about it. So the young people started to talk about going into youth court. And so Helen and I ventured into this place called Holmes County Youth Court that met on Wednesdays. My first experience of going into that court, the first person I saw was a little boy sitting in a chair. He was too short and too tiny to even his feet to touch the floor. I thought, what is going on? I looked around. There was a room full of black children and all the court officials were white. So we started to investigate, reach out to other groups, and the same phenomena was going on with them. And this was in 2001. In 2002, the Department of Justice released an investigative report describing conditions at Mississippi's juvenile prisons. The conditions documented by federal government shocked some but they were no surprise to families and children. In these prisons, children as young as 11 years old were beaten, stripped naked, confined to dark rooms with nothing but a hole in the floor as a toilet. They were sexually abused, denied access to medical and mental health care. The then Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights called the prisons the worst the federal government has seen in 20 years. In wake of the U.S. Department of Justice report, Mississippi's community organizers, racial justice advocates, attorneys, and advocates built a powerful coalition to advocate for legislation that overall the Mississippi's juvenile justice system reduced the number of children in custody and ultimately closed the juvenile prison to detention centers and a prison built specifically for children tried as adults. In 2003, there were over 600 youth in prison in Mississippi's training schools. More than 60% of these young people were there for status offenses. For those of who are unfamiliar, status offenses are things like smoking cigarettes, being disobedient inside of schools, showing up late for school. These children were incarcerated for zero tolerance policy. In 2004, the House passed a bill that would establish a study commission and that would have, among other things, examined the feasibility of closing the training schools. Unfortunately, the bill died in the Senate. In 2005 and 6, Mississippi Juvenile Delinquency Prevention Act and the Juvenile Justice Reform Act was enacted to overhaul Mississippi's juvenile justice system from top to bottom. Among the reforms included were prohibitions on the imprisonment of status offenders and first-time nonviolent offenders and any child who had not committed a felony. A 
requirement that judges determine whether placement met the child's needs before issuing a disposition order, the creation of community-based alternatives, and the development of a facilities monitoring unit. In 2007, a major scandal broke out regarding Columbia training schools. Girls had been shackled together for weeks at a time and sexually abused. Young women testified before the legislature and told their stories of abuse and victimization. Attention and calls for change came from families and communities. In 2008, the state of Mississippi announced that it would permanently close the training schools. In 2010, due to decreasing population, some lawmakers proposed a shutdown of the juvenile justice system. Advocates launched a campaign because we needed to highlight the dangers of processing youth in the adult criminal system. Mississippi passes new legislation that brings 17 year olds who have committed misdemeanors into the juvenile justice system. In 2016, Mississippi's training school averaged less than 90 youth. The coalition immediately knew that we needed to focus on closing youth prisons in Mississippi. But it was unclear. This was an incredibly heavy lifting work. Mississippi is a very poor state, and we were talking about taking away people's jobs. A lot of those jobs were in poor communities of color. We hashed this out within our coalition meetings, met with advocates from other states, but we didn't want the prisons to be job projects, and we knew these places couldn't be fixed. Closure was the goal. Our coalition was large and diverse. There was conflict sometimes between the national groups and the state-based organizations, between the lawyers and the organizers. Working in coalition forced us all to stretch outside of our respective comfort zones. The lawyers realized that legal action wasn't going to solve the problem. The organizers realized that rallies weren't going to get it done either. Policy advocates knew that it couldn't be solved by legislation. We looked deeply at our system and worked together to execute a multifaceted campaign. If you're involved in a campaign, make sure that it's bottom up, not top down. Campaigns need to be rooted in communities that are most affected by the youth prison or the work that you're doing. I'll now share with you some of the perspective of the young people who were inside those prisons. This young person said, I was put in Columbia Training School when I was 11 years old. I stayed in the training school for most of my life as a teenager, in and out, in and out. They treated us like dogs, worse than dogs. They beat us. They laughed at us. No one wants their child to go through what I did. When Columbia closed, I was so happy because it meant no other child would have to live through that. People really need to listen to us. No one believed us once about what happened there. Adults need to listen to kids and ask them questions, even the questions they don't want to know the answers to. My life would have been totally different if I hadn't grown up in those places. When I heard there were people all over the country trying to shut down these places, it made me so happy because no one deserves to go through what we went through. Thank you all for your attention this afternoon, and I hope I've set the context for the work in Mississippi. Thank you so very much, Ms. Ellen. So we are going to now turn to Allison R. Brown to talk about a case that 
truly broke open what we came to learn and know about the school-to-prison pipeline um, in Mississippi, which also has domino effects across the country around our understanding of what the school-to-prison pipeline was and how it was taking shape and existing in schools and communities across the country. So, Allison, I'm going to turn it over you to you to talk about Meridian. Thank you, Fina. So, as Fina mentioned, uh, in 2010, I was a trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division's Educational Opportunities Section. Many of the cases that we had at that time were school desegregation cases, so cases that were filed shortly after the unanimous Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954. So I had cases that had been filed by Thurgood Marshall and his his colleagues. So these were old cases, and we were litigating under a new strategy that we had developed that essentially said that school discipline, pushing Black children out of school through out-of-school suspensions, in-school suspensions, Uh, expulsions and referrals to law enforcement were manifestations of the segregated school system of previous years. And so as we were developing that legal theory, Meridian came across my desk. I received a complaint about a literal school-to-prison pipeline in Meridian, Mississippi. And I got to work very, very closely with Black community and uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I'm, I'm looking at and winking at my friend and brother, Jed Oppenheim, who was right in there with us doing that work. And together, we started to do some investigating of the complaint. And what we uncovered was more horrific than anything I could have imagined. We were initially investigating the school district because there was one predominantly white elementary school that received disproportionate resources from the school district. And white teachers were permitted to automatically send their children to that school. All of the district's gifted programming for elementary students was at that one school so that Black children in the gifted program were bused there one day a week for gifted instruction. And the investigation into that inequity bloomed after we received the complaint. And so we began to meet with parents and families and children who told us their stories. A Black superintendent who had been working in his short tenure to make significant modifications to the policies and practices of the district was fired. White school board members opposed his actions. They fired him and they replaced him with a white superintendent who would do their bidding. The white mayor actually appointed the school board members. And so the the two most vocal school board members who were adamantly opposed to this Black superintendent had been recently appointed by that white mayor. And the mayor had made comments at meetings with white parents about, you know, taking their schools back and getting rid of a particular element within the schools, clearly indicating that she was intending to drive Black children out of the schools and try to welcome back white parents who had chosen private schools. So the the school board members were not elected. She selected those uh, school board members, and they often used her voice to do their work. So almost immediately after he was appointed, the new white superintendent implemented zero tolerance discipline policies in line with what those two white school board members had been advocating for. And in addition to more intense scrutiny of dress code and school uniform violations, law enforcement would be notified, quote, 
when any student is involved in a physical altercation, a fight in grades six through 12. So any student involved, including students who were bystanders of a fight would be arrested by police. And the white police chief was also appointed by the mayor and was instructed to inform his officers to respond to schools to arrest students who were identified by the school. They weren't to conduct their own independent inquiry or investigation. They were simply to respond to the schools. The students that were identified by the school administrators were to be arrested and taken to the juvenile detention center. So, as you might imagine, the number of students that were arrested after this policy was implemented rose tremendously. And only Black students, as far as we could tell, were arrested under this policy. And students began to call it the walk of shame. Every day, Black children were arrested out of school, escorted by police in handcuffs and shackles to a police car and on to the detention center every single day. We met with families in their homes. We co-hosted with the Southern Poverty Law Center community meetings with hundreds of Black children and their families. We even met with Black police officers who told us about their white colleagues who took advantage of this new policy to express their racial hatred against the children that they were arresting, often in physical ways, berating them and calling them the N-word. And there were tremendously troubling behaviors from the, the white police officers who really took great pleasure in this new policy. So we heard several, several stories. We talked to dozens of students and their parents and grandparents, but a few really stood out. So one uh, was a, a Black grandmother who was raising her 14-year-old grandson. He had Asperger's syndrome, and he had been bullied by his classmates in one particular class, his science class. And uh, he showed up to school one day, and the teacher in that class was not there. There was no substitute, and the students were kind of left to their own devices. So he was bullied mercilessly on this day, and he responded physically and got into a fight with his attacker. He was therefore involved in a physical altercation and was arrested by police and taken to the juvenile detention facility. And the grandmother shared with us that she was most disheartened by her grandson's reaction in the days following his arrest. She said he was energized and now felt like he was one of the normal kids because he too was arrested out of school. And she said that this had become the norm for Black children. We met a, a Black teenager who was arrested for disrespect. He still was not sure what he had done, but he spent 50 days, almost two months, in the juvenile detention center on charges that were unclear, that we couldn't even find. And we talked to a young man who I will, I will never forget. We sat in his living room, and he was 15. But he had a little sister and she had a little rocking horse in the living room. And he was sitting on that rocking horse and rocking back and forth, talking to us. And she was kind of peeking around the corner and giggling with us. And he was recounting with us that he had been arrested several times. And this was this was fairly early in the school year, but he had already been arrested several times out of school. The most recent time he was in ROTC class doing push-ups. And he said he farted and he started, he was laughing as he was telling us the story, but the teacher sent him to the principal's office and the principal immediately called police. And so he was arrested 
for flatulence in the classroom and spent several days in the detention center there in Meridian. We talked to students who were suspended for having their shirt hanging out of their pants, for wearing the wrong type or color pants, for having the incorrect number of buttons on their shirts. They were routinely punished for disrespect and disrespect often was looking down at the floor rather than making eye contact with the teacher and kicking the floor while speaking. And as one black psychologist pointed out to us uh, in Mississippi, as you all know, until very recently, it was dangerous for black people to look white people in the eye. And all of the teachers were white um, in this uh, high school. So the students were being punished for doing things that would have saved their lives a generation before. Students were regularly maced in school for things like, again, disrespect and talking back to a teacher. So again, we talked to dozens of students with stories like that, and we investigated and we litigated and the district fought us incredibly hard. And I remember vividly the lawyer for the district who always came this close to calling me out of my name for having the nerve to be in his backyard, for having the nerve to be Black, for having the nerve to be female, and having the nerve to be advocating for Black children. But ultimately, we won, and we signed a consent decree with the the school district that essentially overhauled the discipline policy there. They ended up hiring a new Black superintendent, and they modified many of the policies that had been sending young people into the juvenile detention facility from school. We were able to involve the entire civil rights division. So employment, we were hearing from Black teachers who were being fired for standing up for their students. And so the employment section got involved, our special education section got involved, and they were investigating the juvenile detention facility, which I had the opportunity to visit. And it was, deplorable is not the right word. Uh, It was something out of a nightmare with the rodents and the critters, the mattresses were old and on the floor. It was horrible. We got our criminal section involved because uh, many of our witnesses were facing threats from the white community for speaking to us. But none of this would have been possible at all without collaboration from the community, without the bravery, the courage of the the Black mothers and grandmothers and, and fathers and uncles and others who spoke to us without the bravery and courage of those two Black police officers who, when we met with them, they insisted to meet after dark and in a specific location in the back of the building where they couldn't be seen and they parked blocks away and and had to, you know, walk and, and try to make sure they weren't being followed. And, and they shared tremendous information with us. And this is recent memory. This is not 1950. This is, you know, 2010, 2011 when, you know, dehumanization of Black children uh, is still a very real thing. So I'll stop there and turn it back to my friends, Fina, and thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Allison. It almost doesn't feel fair to have such short time slots for everyone to speak because there's so much history and there's so much that we could cover here. I think I hope that this just gives you a taste of some of this history and that you'll do you'll do more digging on your own. Um, but I'm really honored to now turn it over to Southern Echo. Um, that's my one-year-old. Hi. We're going to now turn it over to Rachel Mays and Brenda Hyde to talk about the work of Southern Echo, again, carrying forward 
this work um, that's gone on now for decades. Southern Echo has been a giant, just like Molly Jenkins Family Center, a giant in the South doing this work. And talk a little bit about what that fight has been against the dehumanization of Black youth in Mississippi. So I'm going to turn it over uh, to Southern Echo. Southern Echo was founded in 1989 as a statewide and regional organization with a mission to ensure the actualization of a fully realized democracy with responsive and accountable governance. Some of our programs of work areas include civic engagement, which involves voting census and redistricting, public education, health equity, environmental justice, and youth leadership development. So when we look at a case study uh, going back to 1989 around the work that Southern Echo did early on to engage people across the state to become engaged civically, to bring about change as it relates to education funding, then we find that the efforts to empower grassroots, low-wealth African-American communities and people of color in Mississippi has been the cornerstone of Southern Echo work to bring about systemic changes and address inequities in education, we knew that we needed more representation at the state and local levels. So from 1990 to 1992, we hear what happens. The community organizing work from 1990 to 1992 focused on providing for the first time training and technical assistance to grassroots African-American communities and assisted them in building new broad-based community organizations throughout the state, which yielded to the consciousness raising and skill development of community. This process led to a record African-American community turnout vote in the state and county elections in 1991. As a result of the work that we did across the state, the Mississippi Black Caucus doubled from 21 to 42. This electoral win and subsequent wins gave way to the passing of the 1997 Mississippi Adequate Education Program because the Democratic legislators had the balance of power in the legislature, in the state legislature. So prior to Mississippi Adequate Education Program, Mississippi had what was called the Minimum Education Act. And we're talking about fully realizing education in Mississippi. Then with a minimum education formula, you don't get much traction and you don't get much education. The MAEP formula has only been funded two times since 1997. So the struggle for a quality education continues and it is why we need to continue to educate parents, communities, and education stakeholders to hold accountable public officials and demand a quality public education for all children. So looking at the word dehumanize, we were told by senators at that point in time that the MAEP formula would only fund an eighth grade education. So again, I go from first grade or pre-K all the way to 12th grade, and I graduate with only an eighth grade education. That's not equitable, and that's not justice, right? When we look at the minimum education formula that we had, 
Currently, we have the MAEP formula, funding formula for education, but that's only been funded two times since it's been in place since 1997. And so there's still much work that we need to do because we need to get to the place in Mississippi where we're funding education in a just and an equity way. That way, we realize for all of the students across the state, regardless of zip code, race, creed, or color, the proper supports that children need to learn. All children can learn, but some children learn different. And so we need to begin to address what are those other supports that children need. And that only comes through funding, right? When we're able to realize the money that's needed to provide the supports that children need, then we realize a different education for our children. That justice and equity portion also includes embracing parental engagement for all of our school systems, for all of our education arenas. And the corporal punishment issue, if we had proper supports, then sometimes we would not realize the derailment of children from the classroom to these other uh, situations that we've just heard about. So now Brenda will talk about how we've engaged community and education stakeholders to become the architects of public policy. So thank you, Rachel. And Rachel, we were still having some issues um, with the sound as you, you were speaking, but hopefully people really got the points that you were making. I do want to, thank you guys, See that I do want to lift up something you were saying in terms of the Mississippi Adequate Education Program being passed in 1997, that it has only been fully funded twice since its inception. So I did want to lift that piece up. And I also want to go back and talk about some of how that happened to tie it into us teaching and training our communities to become architects of public policy and not just objects of public policy. So one of the key for us to understand from the masses of the community level is that we would not have been able to even move from minima to adequacy in 1997 had organizations like Our Southern Echo and others had not engaged communities in understanding the redistricting process. That understanding was also tied to understanding the importance of the right to vote and the importance of exercising that right to vote connecting to the understanding that being engaged in the redistricting process allows for communities to be able to elect accountable representation of their choosing who would address the needs and interests of the community. So when Rachel lift up and talked about us being able to double the size of the state legislature in terms of its Black caucus members, from 21 to 42, had that not taken place, had communities not engaged and been a part of that process to help elect these state reps and senators, had that not happened, 
the Black caucus in the Mississippi legislature would not have held, as Rachel said, that balance of power to be able to pass the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. Again, as Rachel lifts up, when you don't talk about dehumanizing Black children, most children within the public school system in the state of Mississippi are Black children. It's dehumanizing, in my opinion, when you say I'm only deserving of a minimum education and then I'm only deserving of an adequate education, right? So Southern Echo fight around education has always been for the Mississippi public school system to yield a quality public education to all of our children and our families within the public school system. And so that fight has long been to educate race consciousness, empower the masses of our grassroots communities to engage in that process. That's where you go from just being objects of public policy, but becoming architects of public policy. The way you fight and engage for education justice, environmental justice, housing justice, healthcare justice, you also must first engage civically because it is these old political structure that's continue to oppress us and that continues to dehumanize us. Institutional and systemic racism is real. I saw in the chat and people saying this happened in the 2000s. Yes, it's still happening today in 2020 because these are old institutionalized racial construct systems that we still are up against to fight for justice on every level of African-Americans and people of color. So because of that, it's important that we educate and help our people to understand that every election is an important election, not just a presidential election, but every election is an important election. And most of the time, there's a saying, all politics are local. People are going to be directly impacted by the local policy, rules, regulation, and laws that are occurring within their community. So we teach and train all of our community members to be a part of the political processes locally, as well as on a statewide and national level. Exercise your right to vote. Attend all of your local governing bodies meeting, your board of supervisors, your city councils, your school board elections, your zoning board elections. All of these elections are essential to the type of policies that are going to govern our communities within our communities. And so our people need to make sure they are exercising their civic duty and participating in democracy. And the best way to participate in this democracy is through your vote. It may not be the best democracy, but it is the only democracy we have now. And one way your voice is heard is through your vote. And so it's important that we make sure we continue to educate the masses about the importance of all elections and not just the presidential election. And one way you can help people make the connection is look at, in terms of Mississippi's history, look at happened when we didn't go out to vote 
in the midterm elections, 2010, 2015. Today, as a result of us not participating the way we needed to participate in the midterm election, we have a super majority Republican, very conservative led legislature, right? And that's why we got to make sure we are doing the type of conscious raising type of education within and throughout our entire communities with the masses of our people to help them understand the connections of all of these processes and to seize the opportunities that come along that help communities change the conditions by which they find themselves. For example, the connection between the census and redistricting and voting, right? It's very important to understand that. We need a fair and accurate, complete census count so that we could have a fair redistricting process. Also, so that we can get the type of funding toward our community services and programs that we need and that we rightfully deserve based on our populations, right? So we have to get the census right so that we can get funding right for the type of program and services we desire in our communities and so we can get redistricting right so that we have the opportunity to elect accountable representation of our choosing who's going to make policy, rules, regulation, and laws that's accountable to the needs and interests of our community. And when we get all that right, we have to get our vote right. And we have to vote based on our interests and make informed decisions about our voting to be able to elect this accountable representation that we're talking about. This is the pathway to becoming architects of public policy and not just on the receiving end of being objects to public policy. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much, Brenda. There's a fine line between love and hate. You see, can't wait too late, but baby, I'm on it.